Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast. A thoroughbred podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 146, The Equestrasode. That's right. If that horse pun, start the counter, is not enough to give it away, we're talking about horses today, and specifically horse movies, uh, which you may be thinking, that's a very sub-subculture movie genre to talk about. But is but, it? Au contraire, while it is definitely a very sub-genre of, uh, of movies that are very specific, it's very intrinsic to the history of cinema. And we've talked about something like this with the uh, appearance of trains throughout a lot of uh, 20th century film where it's just kind of like things in motion that were around when film technology was becoming big. But it also seems to go deeper than that. So before we get into the movies today, I wanted to start off with a little story from the origin days of film. Story time. And, uh, yo, story time, yeah. People tell you that there's uh, often like one person who invented film, but that's not really the case. It's kind of a technology that emerged from multiple discoveries and advances in photography. Um, and There's today, a bunch of people dinking around with film. Yeah, very much so. Like people messing around. Uh, essentially, one guy who wanted to shoot photos faster. That's where we're, what we're talking about today. And a horse is involved. So let's yep. tell you the tale of Ed Weird Moybridge. Yeah, that's yes, his name. Yes, his name it's, is Moy Weird Ed Weird. Ed Weird Moybridge. That. And the weird thing is, his birth name is Ed Weird. It is Edward. <laughs> He changed it to Ed Weird. Did he but really? He's also, he's a, he's a weird dude, so if I think that'll become apparent. This uh, guy he, was not horsing around. <laughs> no, 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 no. No horsing around for this guy. He was tight on those reins. Uh, he was an English photographer born in 1830, and he was really into photography. Uh, keep in mind that this was during a time when photography was just really becoming a thing and photographer to take a photo took a while if you've ever seen an old photo from the 1800s you may notice that it looks like everybody looks really bored or dead or super serious and the reason is it took forever to take the photo <laughs> there was most no of them weren't dead fast it most of them were dead some of them were uh but you essentially had to hold very still for a photo and it took a while to take a photo and it's kind of hard to hold a smile for five minutes. So instead people would just make a straight face or a posture that was easier to hold for an extended period of time. It's also why people think ghosts are in old photos, but it's just people moving. And yeah. Leaving it's the just frame. people moving between the frames, you know, those light exposure, essentially kind of the same thing that happens in those long exposure light photography things, but with people becoming ghosts. Um, and Ed Weird was not super happy with uh, how the technology was, and he was very into it. He was known for selling, uh, for selling photos of landscapes and cityscapes like San Francisco and Yosemite. Um, but he worked to kind of develop the technology and in Britain uh, secured multiple patents uh, to advance the technology known as wet plate collodion photography, which I'm not entirely sure what it is, but it sounds old. So there you go. Very technical. And it's not the main technology we're talking about with Ed Weird today. But after immigrating to America, he uh, had some very strenuous business dealings, but he also had some very strenuous 
personal dealings. And just to show you how wild and untamed this guy was, uh, he was acquitted of killing his wife's lover, who was a, uh, a major in the army, uh, in a case of justifiable homicide. Uh, which kind of rings a bell because not too long ago on the Auto Primager episode, we covered Anatomy of a Murder, which mm-hmm. was a very similar case. Uh, but he kind of, Moybridge, little off the train. <laughs> he, uh, he, he, was, he was pretty intense. So Apparently that's kind of how he it, approached though. anything. And that's kind of how he approached technology as well. In 1872, Leland Stanford, yeah, the guy who founded the school, hired Moybridge to record his home and other possessions, including his horse. Named Is that like Occident. a uh, that that sounds like a Scarface paranoia type thing? Like just in case someone steals my stuff, I'll know exactly what I had. Uh, yeah, yeah, it does sound like he was taking pictures for his uh, his renter's insurance or his home insurance, but uh, I believe it was. Kind of like I'm sure we will talk about in the future on the bonus episode, how horses are kind of possessions that people like to show off. Yeah, uh, especially rich people who have money to hire uh, professional photographers, which were not as common in 1872. Not everyone had a DSLR. I imagine this was quite expensive um, to uh, to record their possessions for posterity or to just show off to other people. And Stanford wanted a photo of his horse at full speed, but there was a problem. He didn't believe the common depictions in paintings at the time where trotting horses and galloping horses were shown with at least one hoof touching the ground at all times. And that's why he brought in Moybridge to take a photo to kind of both capture Occident in motion, but also prove to all of his other rich guy friends that he was right. Um, there are stories about a $25,000 bet being made about this, but there's no record, uh, written record of that account. Of that course there's not. Some kind of either it wasn't written down or it's a mythological thing that kind of, uh, came about after as the story kind of progressed. Uh, so in 1872, Moybridge went to try to take a photograph of Occident, but it was pretty blurry. Like we said, while Moybridge had done some work to improve the photographic process, photos still weren't very fast. It took a lot of light to expose them, and it took a lot of time to expose them as well. Um, So the photo of a horse in motion, what we would now probably consider like sports photography, the camera technology of the day, not up to snuff. So Moybridge worked with engineers from the Central Pacific Railroad, which was... Uh, Stanford's company, again, we cannot emphasize how rich this guy was, to develop faster shutters and trigger mechanisms, effectively developing some of the first high-speed photography technology. And in July of 1877, another photo was taken with the newer technology, which was much better, but unfortunately, reporters didn't believe the photo was real. And Moybridge did at that time have a retouch artist kind of work with the photo to make it a little clearer, but it was in essence a real photo. It was just kind of Fake touched news. up for uh, for selling because that's what Moybridge's business was. When he wasn't photographing people's horses, he was selling his photos to people who wanted display photos or see places they hadn't seen before because they didn't have photography. And how are you going to know about hashtag van life unless Moybridge <laughs> takes a photo of himself in a van 
Like you're not. So he was making a business selling photos and he did that. But reporters Please tell didn't me believe there's it. a photo of him in like a, a wagon buggy. A wagon, hashtag wagon life. <laughs> Uh, Stanford and Moy so Stanford and Moybridge got together again and planned a new project to prove to everyone that instantaneous photography was the real deal. So on the 15th of June 1878, Moybridge set up 12 cameras along Stanford's Palo Alto stock farm. That's right. This is a Silicon Valley story. Uh, that's also the location of the future campus of uh, Stanford University as well. Uh, he invited a bunch of reporters to come to this exhibition and the shutters for those 12 cameras were set up with trip wires so that as Occident ran by, instant photos would be taken of the horse in motion. The experiment was a success and convinced reporters in attendance that the photos were real and that horses did pick up all four hoofs at the same time while running. So Stanford got his rich boy bragging rights. Uh, Stanford Finally figured would, out that mystery and yeah. the world is better for it. Stanford would actually go on to kind of screw over Moybridge uh, in very dramatic fashion. Moybridge later in his life did some work that he needed the support of the Royal Academy of Science in, uh, in Great Britain. And uh, after uh, Stanford published a book about this experiment that Moybridge did at Palo Alto, but didn't mention Moybridge at all, uh, the Royal Academy was like, you're lying to us, Moybridge. You weren't oh, there. Geez. This rich guy says you weren't there. He didn't mention you at once. The reason he wasn't mentioned was because Stanford just kind of viewed Moybridge as an employee and Stanford was, in his own mind, the guy who came up with everything. Uh, even though Moybridge was the one who kind of developed all the technology. So there was a lawsuit about it. Moybridge pursued it very uh, intensely. Didn't really work out in his favor, though. But yeah, there you go. Another weird personal uh, intense story about Moybridge. The horse in motion, as the set of photos came to be called, was exhibited as a set of magic lantern projection slides around the San Francisco area by Moybridge. He also had woodcut engravings that were made and widely printed and sold. And the Scientific American, among other magazines, touted Moybridge's groundbreaking use of photography to capture motion. And that's... Might not sound like a lot, but really, photography was not quick enough to capture motion up into that point. It could capture light, mm -hmm. but if something was moving too fast, like you said, Jonathan, it would look like a ghost in frame. But now you could capture motion. And if that doesn't sound like something stepping towards film, well, listen to this. Moybridge created a disc-like device called the Zoopraxiscope to display his images in sequence... Is this sounding like film yet? A stepping stone in the advance towards cinematography. He would create many more stop motion studies throughout the rest of his life, mostly of animals and naked people. Um, and you can go look them up if you want. They're a little weird, but it's kind of cool to see like cinema kind of be born there. And he was only just one of many other people who, uh, who kind of made this step uh, in technology at the same time. He compared notes with this French guy who invented a uh, similar contraption with a, uh, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he was a French guy who designed a rifle to, instead of shoot bullets, to take pictures. And he used it to capture a duck. The original hippie. <laughs> yeah. He he, uh, he retooled a rifle to take uh, these uh, action photos of a duck in flight. And he created a very similar photo 
uh, sequence of uh, ducks mm. in flight. Um, but more it's crazy that as soon as we had the technology to capture a fraction of a second, it was already being used to sequence them together and make frames, which is still exactly what film is made out of. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And it all comes back to that fundamental idea of um, photography being light, cinematography being cap, uh, being about capturing light in move motion, light, light over as it time. Changes. Yeah, yeah. And that's really the equation that's being worked out here by guys like Moybridge and the French man with the duck, whose name I can't remember. <laughs> I apologize. Um, yeah, but it's. I mean. Because he could have just taken the one shot of the horse with all the toes in the air and thrown all the other ones away, but mm-hmm. no, he's got to put it all together. Yeah. I mean, and in, we're in, so to a certain extent, we have to think how, both how stubborn Leland Stanford was and how those reporters didn't believe the first photo, they, the second photo they took yeah. that worked that because that's what pushed them to that point. Yeah. Crazy. But yes. And so thus, a horse was there at one of the genesis points of cinema. And uh, yeah, we've been making movies and stories about horses ever since. Yep, they've uh, been there ever since. So we're talking about a few of them um, that are not just focused on the fact that we can take photos of horses, but we're telling stories and we're connecting horses to people and uh, what uh, our horse companions tell us about ourselves. The first film we'll be talking about is The Black Stallion from 1979. That's literally a hundred years after the Moybridge experiment. I just want to point that out. Oh, there you go. That's crazy. hundred years. Uh, The film stars Kelly Reno, Mickey Rooney, and Terry Garr, directed by Carol Ballard, uh, written by Melissa Matheson, Gene Rosenberg, and William D. Whitliffe. Cinematography by Caleb Deschanel and edited by Robert Dalva. And then we'll be talking about Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron from 2002, starring Matt Damon for some reason, James Cromwell and Daniel Studi, directed by Kelly Ashbury and Lorna Cook, written by John Fusco, I think based on a story by uh, John Katzenberger. Uh, I need to double check that. Anyway, edited yeah, he does by. Have a story by credit. Nick Fletcher. And then we'll be talking about Seabiscuit from 2003, starring Toby Maguire, uh, Jeff Bridges, and Chris Cooper. Directed and written by Gary Ross. Cinematography by John Schwartzman. And edited by William Goldenberg. Uh, and finally, we'll be talking about War Horse from 2011, starring Emily Watson, David Thulis, Peter M- Mullen. Neil, why, why are these all so hard to say? Niels Arstrup <laughs> and Jeremy Irvine. <laughs> Directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Lee Hall and Richard Curtis, based on the play by Nick Stafford, based on the book by Michael Morpurgo. <laughs> Cinematography by Janusz Kaminski. That's the easiest one to say. Edited by Michael Kahn. Indeed, indeed. We have quite a few uh, quite a few good horse movies to talk about. So let's jump into it. Jason, take it away with a setup for The Black Stallion from 1979. The Black Stallion from 1979. 
Aboard a steamer ship with his father in the Mediterranean, young boy Alec Ramsey meets a beautiful but ferocious black stallion. Alec instantly falls for the horse and is told the story of Alexander the Great and his wild horse, Bucephalus, by his father. That night, the steamer is caught in a storm and goes down. The only survivors are young Alec and the black stallion, washed up on an island and forced to survive together. All right, right out of the gate, Alex, we're talking about this film, The Black Stallion, which is actually a film that I had seen a few times as a kid, and uh, it always stuck with me for some reason. Honestly, not all of the movies stuck with me, uh, but the sinking ship at the beginning was like very much in my brain for some reason, because uh, it's kind of dramatic. It starts off really dramatic, uh, and then it goes through this really beautiful almost silent film sequence, and then it turns into like a normal movie. It's it's so interesting the way the film is structured. It is, it's, it's, it works really well. Uh, let, it does, I, I yeah. really like the way in which it, in which it is shot because it kind of comes and goes from different uh, viewpoints and like levels of consciousness. Like you were saying, like it almost becomes a silent film for a certain point. But that kind of tracks with like where they are uh, on the on the island, right? Mm-hmm. Like I like how, and we talked about this in a previous episode with um, Abbas Kiarostami and uh, Where's the Friend's House um, and how that film is both a children's movie and shot from a child's point of view. And this movie is very similar. Um, they, they really kind of capture that all of this is from Alex's uh, point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of do that both through the different tones, like you were talking about, but also the way they use uh, their telescopic lenses, lenses is very, mm-hmm. very key to that. Uh, we've talked about this before as well. We've talked about a lot of things. It's a big show. You should check it out. Uh, but we talked about how in the 70s, they go nuts with their zoom lenses and their telescopic lenses. And they use those a lot in this movie. Uh, but the way, but the effect that kind of has is it focuses in with this narrow uh, depth of frame on a single subject or a single snippet of a scene, almost like a child's wandering eye, and everything around it kind of feels blurry whenever mm-hmm. you're in the real world. Whereas, um, uh, and that, or I was going to say, and that kind of lines up with this kind of feeling like a fragmented set of childhood memories that. Uh, Alec would be remembering later mm-hmm. on. Um, and that's kind of how the film ends, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it works It works very well. Um, what did you think about, and it's pretty obvious from the get-go, it's not really super duper uh, uh, hard to pick up on, but the whole connection of the kid being named Alec and his mm-hmm. father telling him the story of uh, Alexander, uh, Alexander the Great, and Bucephalus, his horse. Yeah. And then he gives him the token, which uh, is a really great just kind of visual representation um, that he can have and use for the horse when the horse can't actually be in the frame. Um, but yeah, no, it's it adds a lot of... And you can tell, like, this is one of those movies that you can tell is based on a novel that, like, really gets into a lot of this stuff because there was even some stuff that... Uh, they didn't dive into too much where the uh, um, the guy, I'm not sure if he was, uh, honestly, 
the African-American guy who comes in almost like a wizard on his uh, horse, Napoleon. And then it kind of becomes the boy's friend after he gets back to uh, real life. And oh, yeah. he, he has this line uh, where he says, you, you got to keep that horse wild. Um, and then they still go through the training and stuff with the horse. Uh, and it, like you could tell that that was probably a much more built up theme in the book and they didn't have time to develop it all the way uh, because you could you could almost see a sequence of of the horse being more uh, resilient to being trained and being uh, uh, restrained and stuff. But it's also about how the boy is able to have that relationship with the horse that kind of tames it. Um, and I think to go back to what you were talking about, just even the fact that you compared the the tone of this film to an Abbas Kiarostami film is says a lot because one of the things that struck me the most is that this is a children's movie, but it's so restrained and it's so slow and it's so thoughtful that there I can't think of a single like modern children's movie that builds their story like this because it's not fast. It's not flashy. It's not in your face, but it's not trying drenched. to sell you merch. It's not. Yeah, right. But it's drenched in like emotion and hum, human connection and like this adventure story. And the most adventurous part of the story is the slowest part of the story. But it still just kind of fills your imagination um, with oh, like, yeah. how would you survive on an island? And the fact that they don't tell you everything that he did and he's not like, uh, you know, we're not going through all these things, but we see snippets and vignettes. Yeah. Uh, you see him eat some seaweed. <laughs> But right. you, you just kind of figure he stays alive somehow and he bonds with the horse. Yeah. Right. And then uh, and then even when it gets back, it's not like in your face. It's still like a really uh, kind of thoughtful movie in the same way that Abbas Kiarostami builds his films very in a very slow and thoughtful and methodic manner. Um, uh, like even the uh, the sequence of black uh, testing for the race or doing. Uh, the test run and all the all the evaluators are just in their cars and we don't see them and we don't hear anything and we barely hear the horse on the track and there's some shots that are just completely dark uh, from Alex's point of view um, that sequence is so beautiful and so tense but it's not there's no I don't think there's any score in that scene and the scene just plays out and uh, I think that's it's a really beautiful thing to see in a kid's movie because nowadays I think it's just the more color, the more sound, the more like the more you can put into a kid's movies, the more you'll keep their attention. But really what kids need to see are people reacting with each other and like, you know, caring for each other, which is in, which is ultimately what all the characters do in this film. Yeah, yeah, it's um, I like the setup of this uh, of this movie quite a bit in terms of like not necessarily the plot which is fairly simple but the um but the story that's really being told because the journey that Alec is on is heavily metaphorical and mm -hmm. in some ways kind of mythological he's kind of going on this magical journey and you've talked about that wonderment and how some of these characters you feel feel or, or some of these characters who you meet feel magical mm -hmm. um and it very much feels like he's on this big mythological journey uh, from the moment the ship goes down to the moment he befriends the horse and he suddenly becomes this this champion of horse racing in a way or on a quest to become a champion of horse mm -hmm. uh, racing and he meets 
the wise old sage who will teach him the ways forward. Um, Which we should but, point out, Mickey Rooney is actually in, when we're looking up horse movies. Oh, he's a horse guy. First, one of the first horse movies that is always pulls up is National Velvet, which is Mickey, an old uh, Shirley Temple film with Mickey Rooney when he's, National he's Velvet be a teenager. Is, um, I don't think National Velvet is Shirley Temple. I thought that Who was... was that? Um, that was one that of those. That was baby, um, that was, uh, the Elizabeth Taylor. It's baby Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, that's one of the first movies she did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was he's, a surprise he's like a teenager. was going to flop, and it was point. a big boom. Yeah. Uh, so it's fun to see him kind of come back, and now he is, he's the old retired uh, horse trainer, um, mm. and, uh, he he kind of he does the whole coming out of retirement thing, which is its own genre, basically. Yeah. But as Alec is on this big mythical mythical esque journey that, you know, easily anything in childhood could feel like that because the world is new to you and scary and big. And there's those scary guys over there in their car that you can't see. And there's a big horse. Uh, he's also kind of it's kind of a movie about him processing uh, grief in this uh, in this unapproachable way because mm-hmm. he's a kid and how are you going to process the sudden, violent, unexpected death of your father at sea? Um, and so in some ways, befriending the horse is kind of like Alec learning to live with this sudden emptiness in his life, like this sudden grief mm-hmm. in his life that he didn't have before. You know, his dad's suddenly gone Mm-hmm. And now he kind of has to learn to live with that. Like he learns to live with this horse and not just learn to live with it, but learn to race with it to yeah. really move forward with it. In the way and it's a wild, does. it's a wild emotion. You know, when you first encounter it, it's something that, especially you know, for a kid. Yeah, yeah. It's something that could potentially tear you apart, but it's <laughs> it also could feel something like stranded, being stranded on an <laughs> Island in the middle of the ocean. Right. Uh, it's almost like someone knew what they were doing when they wrote this story. Yeah, the uh, the 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 metaphor is both very simple but incredibly effective here. Yeah, and it, it's not it's something that could be really saccharine or overdone, but like it works really well in this situation. Mm-hmm. Both because because it works on both levels, it works on a metaphorical level and on a realistic level. I mean, there yeah. are, there are elements that you have to take. You know, like how does an eight-year-old survive for three months on an island, and how do they let him enter a, a full-blown horse race? But ultimately, the way that the film is presented is so self-assured that you really don't think about that stuff until after the movie's over. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's it's the perfect blending of story and plot, and we've yeah. talked about before how plot is the the factual, physical happenings of the movie. Um, the things that are said that are done, uh, physical consequences that are experienced. The story is everything eternal and emotional. So story is like the internal journey that the character takes, the changes that happen to them, to their personality, the emotional uh, shifts and swings and uh, hurdles that they face over uh, the the course of their uh of their experience with the plot. And when those two things are in sync, you have a really good movie. And mm-hmm. then of course, almost like a horse that, and a rider, almost like a horse and a rider. <laughs> Perfect jockey mount combo. 
Yeah. Uh, not only does does the matching of those two things work really well, but it also matches up well with the style that's been sh- shot in, which we've already talked about. But mm-hmm. uh, the, all three of those things are just firing on all cylinders and kind of just work really well together. Yeah, there's a really great shot. It's actually maybe like the second or third shot in the film, but uh, Alec is on uh, like leaning on the rail of the ship and the the sky is all overcast and the you can tell that the sea is getting worse because we're building up to the storm that's going to sink the ship. But we're so telescopic. And what happens when you use a really telescopic lens is you're flattening the foreground and the background. And so it's like the water line is right behind him and it's going up and down. And you're seeing him and the water kind of trade places at the top and bottom of the frame. And it's just it gives you such a sense of the scale of the ship, the 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 conditions of the sea and also kind of Alex's mental state, too, because we should also mention, I guess, that even though he's dealing with the grief of his dad, there's also this interesting thing where the relationship with his dad is portrayed in a really strange way where his dad is seen gambling and then they're like splitting the spoils and his dad keeps taking stuff away from him. He's like, Oh no, no, you can't have that. Let me keep that one. And Oh no, you can't have that. And he gives him two things though. He gives him a knife and he gives him the horse. And then he tells him this story. So even though (laughs) now this is a knife and technically he gives him three things because he gives him the story. He gives him the story, right? Uh, and so you have this interesting dynamic where, like, his dad is kind of a gambler and kind of a rough guy, but he still has this tenderness with his son, and and uh, and the the way he tells the story is so dynamic that even the audience gets lost in it. Uh, so it's it's really cool. There's a lot of um, complexity in this in this kids movie which I know we always talk about how kids movies should not be just for kids, which I think this is a, this is a great example of it's not pandering to kids. Uh, but it's got a lot of stuff in there that's important for kids to kind of, you know, see and experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a, I hope it's a journey that no kid has to go on, but it does happen and it is, uh, yeah, it'll sit with you for a while. And mm-hmm. the way the way Black Stallion is set up is perfectly shot to sit in your memories because it's shot like a memory already. So it just slips right in. Yeah. You don't even notice. It's probably one of it's, the reasons why it's stuck in my head, even though I saw it like two times when I was a kid. Yeah, it's just it's just in your it's in your noggin still. You can't help it. We just talked about it and it's just it's already in your head. It's too mm-hmm. late now. <laughs> Black Stallion's in there. It's stuck. I do want to mention too that uh there's an overlap between the Black Stallion uh, and Seabiscuit, uh, Black Stallion is set a little bit, a few years after the events of Seabiscuit. Um, and Seabiscuit is a, uh, true, based on a true story, Black Stallion is kind of historical fiction because it is sort of set in the same time period, but it's, it's its own story. Um, but they mention the Iceman, the jockey, the Iceman, George Wolf, um, as one of the greatest Does he jockeys. Cometh? He does cometh. Uh, But the Iceman is the one who uh, takes over for um, the writer of Seabiscuit at the end of uh, at the end of that film. So it's interesting that there's there's a little bit of that connection. And also the fact that Seabiscuit ends with the match race and the Black Stallion leads up to basically like basically the Black Stallion butts into the match race at the end of Seabiscuit. So it's this whole kind of interesting horse racing world. That's 
uh, being built upon with this story. All right, shall we talk about Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, from 2002. Jason, take it away. Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, from 2002. At the dawn of the Wild West in 19th century America, a young Mustang is born and grows up to lead his herd in the wild and untamed plains, free as any creature could be. But one night, he stumbles upon a group of odd-looking animals that walk on only two legs and keep horses and ropes and saddles. From that point, the Mustang's life is changed and he embarks on an odyssey across the Wild West and the men looking to tame it. So, Jonathan, I have a question for you. All right. I have a two-word question. It goes like this. Matt Damon? Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Uh, (laughs) Matt Damon, and this is, we got to just start with this because this is going to be the theme of this uh, review. Uh, Matt Damon is the most unnecessary part of this entire film. It really, that that is the vibe, isn't it? It's, it is, it's not. (sighs) We should mention, first of all, that the way that the film is structured, uh, the horses don't talk, which is great. Uh, no, that's a good choice, I think. There, there are humans that talk, and they kind of, you know, it's it's very naturally filmed, or I guess, like, put together in terms of story. It's not, it's not a talking animal movie. Uh, but there is a narration by Spirit, the main horse, uh, that is voiced by Matt Damon, and... The voice of Matt Damon tells us what Spirit is thinking at all times. It tells us what we what he's thinking about the humans, it's, telling us what he's thinking about his own situation. And if you took out his voiceover, it would be the it would be the same film, but just better because you would be able to figure all that stuff out by what you're seeing. Because the film is so well animated that everything Matt Damon is saying is very apparent on the screen. Yeah, and it's, this is, it's, it's just, just unnecessary, completely unnecessary. And we've talked about this before when we covered uh, Billy Wilder and uh, uh, some of his films like Double Indemnity and uh, I forget which other one, but uh, oh, um, uh, Sunset Boulevard, of course. They, they use narration, but Billy Wilder had the theory that a narration should never tell you something that you can already see on the screen. Uh, it should not tell you any information that you already know. And that is all that Matt Damon's voiceover does. And I get that it's like a kid's film, but I think the film is so well animated with the way that the horses, you know, look and express and interact with the humans that children should be able to pick up on what's going on. And really they're just looking at the horses anyway. They don't care what Matt Damon is saying. And the adults watching the film definitely don't care what Matt Damon is saying. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know what the the way it feels to me, it doesn't feel. Here, here's the thing. It's not. I wouldn't call it bad. I would just call it. It feels like an appendix. It's there. It's hanging out. Mm-hmm. It's just. It's slightly distracting. It's like it a could, commentary track. I wish I could turn it off. Yeah, like you just wish you could toggle it off. It's weird. We have not one but two movies this week that I feel the same way about the narration. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, in this one. Especially because the other one is so slightly more excusable. We'll it's slightly that. more excusable, and I understand where it's coming from. Both feel like studio notes to me, though, <laughs> uh, because this film, like you were saying, Jonathan, works so well without it. Yeah. It's almost and because we've it, this is a recurrent theme, and it kind of ties into the Moybridge story we started off. Is that horses work so well to be caught in motion that they they don't need 
dialogue mm-hmm. to work on film. They can communicate without it. They don't need it. So and the film is very uh, proud of its horse animation. Like that's yeah. apparent from the first frame. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, they, they, um, it, it just works so well. Horses work so well in a silent category mm-hmm. that like this movie could have worked perfectly with just, oh, it would have been so good if it had just not had, I mean, it's already good, but it would have been really good if it had just not had that narration and it was I silent for 90% has- of the time done a fan yeah and and we're not even saying that it has to be a silent film but if you just have the human because the human dialogue is pretty natural like it's what they would be saying again interacting with the horses and and whatnot it's just the horse dialogue is completely unnecessary in conjunction with that yeah it really is uh the other thing that uh really doesn't help it and it's in the same category of words being where it doesn't need to be is the music? Uh, it's so early 2000s. It's so early 2000s. And growing up in that era, like it still gives me feels, but it's this film is is flooded with early 2000s pop music. Yeah. I I so this is my experience of it and uh you've been to this pool so you know Jonathan, but my community pool as a kid uh had pop music constantly playing like top 40 pop music and so a lot of the songs that were that are part of the spirit soundtrack are are songs that i just associate with swimming so (laughs) so much and it just it's like in this category that's pool music and it's just in there it'll always it'll forever be pool music to me uh i just think of it as as a bunch like I group it with a bunch of other movies that were for some reason just super based around this kind of pop music. I think Brother Bear did the same kind of thing and and uh, several other of the animated um, films from that era and even some of the non animated ones. Like I feel like Lizzie McGuire did the same thing because it was Lizzie McGuire. Um, but I will say, though, that the score was written by Hans Zimmer and all the music was sung by this one specific guy. So it was kind of like you know, it was tailored for the movie. It's not like they were just pulling in pop music just to be pop music. They just wrote pop music just to be pop music. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's not, and again, it's not terrible. Uh, it's not a terrible choice in terms of tone, but the Mm -hmm. two big sins it commits in my opinion is that one, it dates it. So like you said, like if you were alive in that era it brings back nostalgia. And if you weren't alive in that era or you weren't like old enough to remember music, then you, it just feels old. Yeah. It's <laughs> it a feels cringy. weird and old. So yeah, it's, it's not the best choice. So yeah, if you ditch the narration and switched out some of the score for a more musical soundtrack, I think you could have a real classic here on par with some other stuff from the same era. Um, uh, talking about kind of shifting focus to kind of some of the visuals here. The, this is from a very specific era of animation in the late nineties mm-hmm. to the early 20 knots before Disney really shifted gears to just being 3d animation. Mm-hmm. And there was this era where there was blended, uh, 2d animation and CGI animation, which people it, crap on a lot, but it's not some bad. Of these movies are great. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like it's Iron Giant. It's Treasure Planet. It's this mm-hmm. movie. It might have felt a little weird, but it's kind of taken on like its own unique style to mm-hmm. it, uh, where it and doesn't. This movie feel really revels in it. Disingenuous. Yeah, it it works. I like it. 
I like it. It, 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 it allows you to do really big things in animation in 2d animation more effectively and more, uh, more, more often because it's cheaper. I hate to say it, but yeah, like, you know, I don't know if this movie would be able to afford the animation hours to make that train move the way they did Mm -hmm. at the end without the CGI component being in there. And, and yeah, there's another thing where this film, so more than, uh, or rather less than iron, iron giant and treasure planet, which really incorporated a lot of 3d objects. Uh, the, both of those being science fictiony. So, you know, the iron giant was a lot of times like a three dimensional model in a 2d set and treasure planet would have just like certain objects that would be 3d in this film there are a few objects that are 3d but for the most part the way that they use it is camera movement in a way that's really hard to uh to track and direct just through hand-drawn animation it's possible but it takes a, a lot of planning and uh you almost have to go film like a helicopter shot and then copy it but with the 3D, you're able to build like the environment. You're able to build uh, the plains and the forests and stuff. And then you can do your 2D animation on the horses and fly your camera around it, uh, which is really cool. And they use they use that a lot. And again, there's this huge theme of uh, freedom. And so there's this this soaring camera movement that is kind of personified in this eagle that follows a uh, spirit around and uh, <clears throat> saves him from Mount Doom. And so the camera is is flying and it's it's doing that representing of freedom uh, and stuff like that. And uh, that's one of the big, big themes of this film, which we should beyond just the technical and the tonal aspects. We should talk about the story because the story is really good um, in the way that we have. It's it's pretty straightforward, but it really gets gets its point across in terms of the way that spirit is uh, captured and then. um escapes and gets recaptured and you have the contrast of the uh the americans who are coming in and they're trying to tame the wildness of i mean there's the the thematic implications go way out there you can read so much into this film but the americans trying to tame the wilderness versus the native americans trying to live at peace and and understand the wilderness and uh uh you know eventually like the uh i forget the the main guy's name uh, Little Creek, I guess. I think that's he, his name. Yeah, he, I don't remember the humans very well from this film. <laughs> <laughs> right, but the uh, uh, the Native American guy, he has the horse that he rides, and he has a good relationship with, and then eventually comes to the the realization that like spirit just doesn't need to be ridden, and he's fine with that. Whereas the American general is, uh, or Colonel rather, is just dead set on riding. This, the the horse and and taming him completely yeah. uh and so you have you know that pretty classic uh conquering of the west which is something that's yeah. explicitly stated in the narration too is, is it's really well set up from a theme standpoint because it's all about the main theme if you had to say a one-word theme of this movie it's freedom mm-hmm. um and the idea of the and also kind of the irony of this this wild west being free in its current state mm-hmm. until people come in and they're like, we're going to make it freer, but actually they're making it less free <laughs> decidedly. Right. So by building From a, a train through it yeah. by, uh, you know, 
the the army showing up and being like, "We're you're gonna take our freedom whether you like it or not." Uh, but <laughs> the freedom for three is, days. Yeah, their freedom is tying a horse and a human to a post mm-hmm. and trying to to break them into uh, into obeying or essentially the opposite of freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So it's from from that that uh, that perspective of how you know, you've heard the phrase how the West was won, but also how the West was lost at the same time mm-hmm. is kind of, I think of that's one of the first here. lines. That's probably the best part of the narration. Yeah. 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 No, it's a, it's a really good, really simple theme. Um, that's set up really well. Uh, and they even, cause there's definitely is the, uh, the, uh, it could eat but by focusing on the horse in the way they did and setting up the characters in the way they did. They also avoided, uh, stepping into too much political hot water at the same time, which right. is probably a good call because this could this film easily could have done that, and I don't think that's what this film was aiming to address. Um, right. So, There's just enough of it, but it's not like trying to shove it down your throat. <laughs> no, 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 no. Especially because it's a kid's movie too. So, right. you know, there's no trail of tears directly in it. Um, yeah. But just the idea, the bigger idea of freedom being discussed from the viewpoint of a horse, which is really, really and pretty interesting if you ask me. Also, just fun fact, uh, Spirit is not a wild horse technically because he's a Mustang. And Mustangs are were formerly domesticated horses that were brought over by the Spanish. So putting on my pedantry goggles <laughs> for a second, uh, Spirit is technically a feral horse because he was from a line that was once domesticated and returned to the wild. Wow. There you go. Of course, you so could also argue that... maybe he needed to be tamed. Yeah. Of course, you could also Spain argue that release. he's... Uh, <laughs> Spay-neuter release. Of course, you could also argue that uh, that that distinction between wild and feral is purely subjective to human, the human experience and like it's just words we put on things and it doesn't like the label on the thing doesn't change the nature of the thing and in both cases of being feral or being wild you're kind of the same thing so it's while pedantic it's also kind of a meaningless distinction in this case so what you're saying is this is the lady horse and the tramp yes <laughs> that's where we're getting to there were elements of that too there were yeah until she died. Sorry, spoilers. Oh, yeah. That was a whole yeah. thing. He saved her and then she died. Like, oof. Again, stuff that doesn't happen all that often, but it's still good to put in kids' movies. It's still real life. Whew. Yeah, we do have a lot of ho- We have two kids' movies as well this, this week. There are so many more horse kid movies that we could have done. Uh, like Disney is just flooded with like flickas and whatnot. Uh, I mean, it makes it makes sense, right? Like horses are one, along with stuff like robots and uh, and cars and dinosaurs. Horses are one of those things that like kids easily glom onto, mm-hmm. right? Because they they look cool. It's easy to make a toy out of them, uh, and it's easy to project emotions onto them too. And that's a key point that we're going to get to. Yeah. as well there's something very nice about like the blank stare of a horse it's not super applicable in this case because the horse is animated so there's mm-hmm. expression 
in the face. Yeah, the non-blank stares of these horses are one of the reasons why you can remove the voiceover because they yeah. are very expressive. Yeah, but it's like but it's, it's the same like, thing as why the live-action Lion King didn't work because you took all the expression off the lions' faces. Yeah. Yeah, and there's no other source of emotion. It can right. work as a good amplification mirror, essentially, if there's already humans in the scene. Right. Like Alec and and Black on the island. Like Black doesn't need to provide any emotion because any emotion provided by Alec is freaking bounced off of Black like mm -hmm. a light ray. Um, they're essentially the perfect palette. Like a live horse is a perfect palette for the Kuleshov effect is kind of what mm -hmm. I've discovered this week. Um, Which know, is that especially going to be useful in Warhorse when we yes. get there. It's it's essentially that effect, a little primer in case you're rusty um, or you haven't heard of it before. The Kuleshov effect is the effect where you take a, the, the traditional experiment you see that was actually done by Lev Kuleshov. I think his name was Lev. Kuleshov was definitely his name. Uh, but Kuleshov was uh, a man with a blank expression and then using editing, you cut together the next shot to be something different. So blank expression plus food and the next shot is hungry. Blank expression plus um, sexy woman and the next shot is horny. Blank expression plus- That was uh, that was Hitchcock's explanation of the Kuleshov effect, but yeah, you got the, you got yeah, the right- Yeah, yeah. Uh, tracks. Yeah, plus like, you know, uh, a kid in the next shot is like carrying- Stuff like that. Um, so the way that editing can extract emotion from a blank palette make, can make a blank palette even more powerful within yeah. that context than actually expressing. Um, because it, and we've talked about this from other angles, anything in your movie, you don't want to give uh, the audience everything in a movie. You want to hold a little bit back to encourage audience engagement. And the Kuleshov effect is perfect for that because it's the it's activating the audience to engage with your 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 cut because the the cut is meaningless until the audience's brain automatically puts together the meaning behind it. So it's a good way to engage the audience. So horses immediately more emotionally powerful, immediately more engaging with the audience. Boom. Well, with that primer, let's move on to Seabiscuit because that is actually useful. This film does a pretty good job of doing that, not just for the horse characters, but also for the human characters. Uh, so, Jason, why don't you set up Seabiscuit from 2003? Seabiscuit from 2003. During the Great Depression, a divorced Buick salesman, a washed-up jockey, and an itinerant horseman form a team to take a small, lazy underdog cult named Seabiscuit and turn him into a proper racehorse. In an era when the little guy couldn't catch a break, the Seabiscuit Racing Team set their sights on racing and beating the Triple Crown winning champion racehorse, War Admiral. All right, Alex, here's the scene. It's the Great Depression. Everyone is down on their luck. And uh, people are just looking for a reason to hope. And in walks Seabiscuit. All eyes turn to him in the room. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's a horse. And from behind Seabiscuit, out walks Toby Maguire in all black. <laughs> oh my God, it's Toby Maguire. He starts dancing. All right, too far. <laughs> There's Jeff Bridges in the corner. Um, yeah, so this film is based on a true story. It was the the book that got really famous is written by the same woman who wrote the um, the novelization of Unbroken uh, that we covered back in the World War II series. Mm -hmm. Um, this film was, uh, done, carried out a little more, uh, 
I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think we talked about Unbroken was a little over dramatic and this film is very dramatic, but it's it's definitely more grounded, I think. Um, yeah. But the fact that it's based on this novelization of a historical event, you can feel the because a lot of times when you're doing a novel like that, uh, you can just tell that in the novel, there's this huge emphasis on the time and place and the the, you know, setting the stage for this uh, really historical event. And the film does that, too, through what we alluded to already, this narration and this use of historical uh, photos and stuff. And so we do kind of like what I was riffing at the beginning. We have, you know, it was the year, you know, 1925. And here's how here's what was going on with America. And then that just kind of gives you a mental picture of what, the of when and where the events that you're about to see were taking place. But to some extent, you could kind of still tell the story without a lot of that, because it does break up the flow at several points, which there's some some aspects where you have to jump through time a little bit in this one. But also it's it's a little bit heavy handed, um, but it could be worse. Yeah, my take is that there is there's a really good sea biscuit film and it's kind of, it's not really ruined, but it's kind of weighed down by essentially a lot of the stuff that we've talked about a little bloated. In, um, from Oscar bait <laughs> way back when. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Where this, this movie definitely feels like it's aiming for kind of like that, that, um, that prestige picture segment mm-hmm. of, of the market. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of the stuff where it's like, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the depression, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. It just feels like tacked on to be like, what if we gave more scope or context to this? And you don't really need it because the greater the greater scope of con- uh, in context is already pretty evident in the situation that everybody's already facing in the movie. Mm-hmm. Or um, at least there's other ways to portray it that aren't yeah. so direct. It's it's yeah. a lot of tell, don't show for some of it. Yes, which, it, they they wanted to work in some of the historical photos and things like that, but the narration is is just a little much. It's very heavy handed, mm-hmm. and it really does weigh down the um, the course. Because when the we're in the story, when we're watching the characters and stuff, like the the film flows well. Uh, the uh, the situations are all portrayed really well. I love the beginning of this film um, where we're kind of getting the the backstory of Jeff Bridges character, although it does it does play to a little bit of kind of spreading thin the characters that we have to focus on. And Jeff Bridges is 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 not he's not the underdog character. There's there's a lot of emotion that kind of comes from it. But I really like the way that they portray uh, the his rags to riches story and then the death of his son and kind of how that all uh kind of his his castle in the sand sort of came crashing down and then this is like his shot at redemption being paralleled with uh uh what's the writer's name let's see uh red oh his name they just call him red uh (laughs) being uh paralleled with red and his whole Thing. But there are some of those shots that, again, like showing some of the island sequences in the Black Stallion, 
um, they're just silent and we're just cutting from one shot to another to another in uh, a way that in an almost Ozu fashion in the ellipsis we're we're being told the story without hearing anything. There's actually a shot of him holding his son and like wailing and we don't hear anything. And it's kind of a really powerful image. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's really honestly quite a good movie when I forget about some of the other setups and trapping and kind of like also the not terrible, but kind of awkward pacing because of the narration breakup that, that, so that's part of it. That is part of it, but also the there's a lot of time they have to cover. So there, they there's jump a lot of time they lot. have to cover, and they don't really make a very strong choice about where they want to end the movie. In my opinion, mm-hmm. <laughs> they kind of end it twice. Um, if you if you if you catch on to what I'm saying, essentially at the end of the second act, yeah. there's a really big win, and it was like okay, big win. They got it. That's the end of the movie, right? They were like, no, we're going to keep going with more plot, Um, which was a good story there at the end, but it just felt disconnected. It felt like, Mm -hmm. it felt like the focus was in a weird place. It felt like if they wanted to go for the ending that they did at the end of the third act, they should have portrayed the race where Seabiscuit finally beats the the, uh, the big horse in the race. War Admiral, yeah. War Admiral, they should have they should have focused on that a bit less because in the moment they presented it as a big win, which they it was a lot of the movie towards that, yeah. But they the whole movie's pointed towards that, and then it just keeps going after that. And sure, there's more plot to explore after that, but essentially we've we've come to a point where we talked about how these two things mix so well in Black Stallion, the story and the plot, and the story and the plot in Seabiscuit just seem like they're running on different timelines. <laughs> Uh, this because the story feels like it ends at when Seabiscuit wins the race, yeah, and then it it starts up a new story after that. Like it starts. I up will like say, a, I will say that the 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 last sort of tacked on race is consistent with themes that were set up very early in the film because a lot of it is about uh you know the second chances. It's about you know you don't shoot a horse when his leg is broken. Like, cause that's literally what we come back to is the fact that, uh, you know, the jockey and Seabiscuit are both broken by the end, you know, physically there is a, it's a broken man and a broken horse and they've taken the time to, uh, to heal and train and, uh, and then they're back at it. And again, like I, I kind of get what you're saying, but I still I feel like a lot of this movie was trying to capture as much of the book and the way that because the book became a became a huge hit whenever it was written. Um, but the way that the book portrayed the story and, you know, and to some extent, there's a real story that they're trying to portray. So there's a lot of those elements that they're kind of juggling. But you're right that the emphasis on the match race is really really big and then there's it, it but it's not the last one yeah that's that's really the big problem because i i do agree with what you're saying with uh the story of uh you know a, a break not being the end that you can come back from that with the second chance i like that and i agree that they they seem to be talking about uh, uh building something like that of course the across the course of the movie 
but there seems to be some dis disagreement within like whoever was making the movie almost feels like studio notes, honestly, because this does feel like it was marketed as a prestige picture um, where. I just want to see Alex x-raying a bunch of movies for studio notes and trying to. I mean, it, it really does feel like it. Reading, though, right? yeah, like, reading behind the lines. Like it, it feels like it feels like the the people who were writing the script and building the plot and setting up what they're going to shoot were aiming for the big win to be uh, Red and Seabiscuit getting back out there and going for uh, and, and and winning a race together uh, as um, as people with a second chance and underdogs. Um, and it feels like, especially because. Because the other thing that almost gets de-emphasized too is the fact that Seabiscuit gets hurt as well after the big win. It feels mm-hmm. like the big win could have been much earlier in the movie. Like the match race could have been much earlier in the movie as part of the earlier second act. But I don't know, for whatever reason, and again, my guess is studio notes, I don't know for sure, there seems to be a big buildup to it and all the cinematic yeah. language behind it. And even if you're not nerds like us, if you've watched a few movies, you understand instinctively when a movie's about to end. You can sense when the big climax is coming because there's certain things that you do to build tension and then show that the big climax is happening in terms of score and cinematography and uh, and cutting and pace and everything was firing on all cin- cylinders in, in that match race and it really just it 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 kind of kneecaps the the whole flow of the movie in a weird way and then afterwards yeah. you're you kind of have that feeling afterwards of like oh that was the movie that was over uh it's it, it's still going that's weird I guess and the choice that you're... said it was still going it it's just it 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 made it two movies when it didn't need to be two movies. I guess the choice that you end up being stuck with is if you want to show both races, you either do it the way that they did it, in which case we spend a lot of time on the PR before the match race, which is really where a lot of that time comes from that pushes it towards the end of the movie. That was was a big mistake. It's the campaign trail. It's the yeah, it's the marketing, it's the PR and all that stuff. But on the other hand, if because what would probably make it more natural is you make the the match race at the like exact center point of the film and then mm-hmm. okay we did that but now we have this new hurdle to overcome um but then you're spending a lot of the second half of the movie just showing mending which is not the most exciting thing to show like there's a lot more excitement to show in like political rallies than there is in like slowly healing and realizing hey we can take little steps and hey maybe we can ride and hey maybe we can ride fast um which could i mean not saying that they couldn't do it but i guess that's kind of the choice you're stuck with is pr versus like slow healing getting back on your feet kind of a thing and that's kind of the uh the the thing that i think i'm getting at and something that we should hit on with like adaptations like broadly is that mm-hmm. the, when you're adaptation adapting real life events, the real life event won't necessarily line up with the three act structure we're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we get into this idea that those two things that you're talking about focusing on Jonathan are two parts of Seabiscuit's life, but mm-hmm. also kind of two different stories with sort of different themes. 
So like the, the campaign trail leading up to the big race is about an underdog during a time when, uh, in America, when at like, the, the little guy was down and out. Like, unemployment yeah. was sky high. It was the Great Depression. We all know that. Um, and coming back and beating this big horse who represents these big, rich, Eastern, like, plutocrats who have all the money in the world and aren't bothered by the Depression at all. Mm-hmm. And that's a great story. Which is story. incorporating money and horses, which is something that uh, is going to be a big part of the bonus podcast. Yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about that on the bonus podcast. Um uh, and that's one theme and one story, right? And then there's the other story you were talking about that was also really good, where it's about broken people getting second chances and a broken country getting a second chance, which also ties into the depression, right? And that's why I think the life story of Seabiscuit is so good because he had two stories that played into the depression like that. But they're also kind of two different stories that happen on two different paces, two different timelines. And so it, it kind of gets a little awkward to try to get them into one three-act structure when you have two themes that are kind of connected but not really connected and de- or, or could be connected if the timing lined up a little better, but not really. So that's where you're kind of getting like a little bit of that awkwardness, a little bit of that jankiness with the pacing. It's not the end of the world, but it does hold this movie back from being like a, from being better than it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, quick side note, just in terms of the narration, I just realized that the, the narrator for the film is David McCullough, uh, who is a famous history, uh, writer in his own right. Uh, he wrote like the John Adams book that got really popular with the miniseries with, uh, Paul Giamatti. Um, and he's written several other books about America and stuff like that. So that also feels very much like a, uh, um, uh, Oscar bait kind of play. Because he's, he's a very prestigious just kind of thinker in the historical yeah. realm. And then, of course, this was that era where, like, big, like, heavy narrated per- period piece movies, like, it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, get, I get why the choices made in this movie were made, and I get the difficulties made behind them, but, like, it feels like they're straddling too many different goals at once and too many different stories at once, and it falls a little short in the mid yeah. middle. But but I don't want to overstep and say that, like, there's not really good content in here, because there is. Like, yeah. anytime you focus in on some of the, the character portrayals and the character stories and the character arcs, like, they're really good. And, like, the way the the, the horse racing is shot is truly spectacular. Like Yeah, the elements are solid, but the, the focus is a little off-center. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, the... Uh, Man, the way they shot the horse races is just really good. Yeah. Moybridge, Moybridge would be proud or ragingly jealous as was that was kind of more of his style, but it was really good. It's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly well shot. And the uh, guy who the, uh, the guy who played the Iceman, uh, like I was mentioning earlier, he was actually a, a jockey and an actor, and he's actually won some jockey award that's named after uh, uh, George Wolf. So he was kind of like the perfect person to step in for him. Um, oh, there you go. There you go. But I think, I think we should mention, uh, like the aspect that this film I think brings to the conversation is this film is really like the sports aspect, right? Oh, so yeah, very this much is, so. this is the, the appeal of the film is the appeal of sports. It's the appeal of, uh, talent is the appeal of, um, you know, 
underdog stories are just built for sports movies anyway. And we've done like a whole series on sports stuff. Uh, And the interesting thing is that this probably falls under like the individual sports category, but it's it's uh, it's achievement, it's talent, but it's kind of a uh, there's a blend of talent. There's the jockey and the horse. And the two things have to be in. Uh, in sync with each other in yeah. a way that's really portrayed well in the film, like the way that each of the characters understands how the horse needs to be um, handled and what the horse needs and stuff like that. And there really is that that synchronicity between them um, that, you know, it's it's actually really cool. If you watch a film like uh, one of the films that we mentioned as being a, a bonus watch film is called Buck, uh, which is about a horse trainer who became really famous and became known as the horse whisperer and a film, uh, by Robert Redford was kind of about uh, a film starring Robert Redford was about him, but he, he has this whole philosophy of how you deal with horses and, you know, basically being, uh, Oh gosh, what's there's, there's a phrase he used, but, um, you do everything gently, but firmly as opposed to, the traditional way of, of breaking horses, which is literally like breaking them mentally through like force. Uh, and so I think that's a thing with horses and these movies is the, the ones that we really connect with are the ones where the people are understanding the horse and they're not trying to overcome and like master the horse, like with the Americans in, uh, in spirit. But in Seabiscuit, it's, you know, the jockey understanding the horse, the trainer understanding the horse and, both of them having to work together in order to get through the finish line. No, I mean, I guess it is a team sport when you put it like that. Yeah. I mean, you've got the coach and you've got the the two players, but there's just nine or so teams on the field at the same time. Yeah. It's like doubles tennis. <laughs> Times eight. Yeah. With nine, with nine teams playing at once, you know, normal doubles tennis. <laughs> I played Wii tennis, I know. But I mean, at, to some extent, also kind of tying back to spirit and and there's there's a little bit of a contrast, but to some extent, the the synchronicity of man and horse is is man and nature. It's like getting back to the basics, getting back to, um, you know, something really essential uh, and there's there's kind of two ways to see it as like in the black stallion they alluded to training a horse to be a racehorse is not letting it be wild but on the other hand like i was saying if you're working with the horse and you're doing things in sync there's there's some aspect of the horse making the person more free so there's all this stuff is going into these horse movies kind of at a subconscious level at some to some extent yeah. All right. Let's move on to Warhorse from 2011. Jason, take it away. Warhorse from 2011. A horse named Joey is purchased by a farmer at an auction in Devon. Despite not being built for the task, Joey and the farmer's son, Albert, plow a field and save the family's farm. But it's 1914, and Joey and Albert are ripped apart by the outbreak of World War I. Sold to the army, Joey embarks on a horse odyssey across the many sides and fortunes of the worst war the world has ever seen. All right, Jonathan, we start our story in the Shire. Basically, the Shire of everyone Devon, talks like a hobbit. Devon, England. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. This one has, uh, and this is this is fitting, but this one definitely has uh, kind of some Hobbit, Lord of the Ring vibes, uh, both in terms of like the way people talk. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very, almost very much sound like hobbits, uh, but also like the the emotional maturity of the characters and the worldview of them seem to be very mm-hmm. hobbit like but that the makes odyssey sense odyssey and journey yeah the, oh yeah the odyssey and journey aspect of it very uh-huh. much very much lord of the rings like um and then of course you know you have to take into consideration that uh tolkien served in world war 1 and a lot of uh, his writings were influenced the same by area. that yeah yeah like the hobbits themselves are kind of meant to be a representation of the English during wartime. So mm-hmm. like, yeah, that makes sense that the English here. A lot of the a lot of the characters in the films that we're familiar with kind of have that same uh uh I'm gonna get the names wrong because I know all the dialects are very specific, but they have the same similar kind of dialects to the Lord of the Rings characters that we're familiar with on the screen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then just the idea of uh, going from a land of peace to a land of war and going on this big mm-hmm. adventure through it. And the way Which is it, all the stuff that inspired Lord of the Rings. Yeah, exactly. And the the World War 1 specifically feels like this disastrous apocalyptic land that's so unreal and so increasingly unreal that it basically feels like fantasy, which I'm sure it did to yeah. people at the time. I mean, I mean it's literally like No Man's Land is literally like Mordor. Yes. Yeah, I mean like the whole setup of uh, of Gondor and Mordor being set up across from each other. There's this land in the middle that you can't cross. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the point. That's where that comes from. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of like the setup for it. And that, that I really like that tone. That tone worked for me um, pretty And of well. course, we have to establish, like, it's Spielberg. So there's, there's nothing in this movie that's really bad. No. Per se. No, no, no. Yeah, but everything, it's almost it's almost too good, and that's yes, I think where yeah. we're gonna end. Up. So, yeah. So just to kind of run down the list of good Spielberg things you'll see here, you know, good use of light, both in terms of like the way he frames light as if it's like a character or like a set piece mm-hmm. is really good, but also like just the cinematography is gorgeous. He's working with Janusz Kaminski on this again, which he who he's worked with a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the use of reaction shots is really good. We talked about the Kuleshov effect with the horse earlier on. Um, and yeah, he definitely uses that here. There's very clear stakes in every scene, uh, mm-hmm. which is a Spielberg thing that he's very good with. And the tension and release is really good where you build up tension and you wonder when the thing is going to, essentially the metaphorical gun is going to fire in most scenes and eventually it does and something happens and breaks and then you're off to action again before you settle down and rebuild tension. So all that stuff that you're used to in Spielberg film is really good. And it's almost too good here. You know what I was just thinking? It also has, so for those of you who may not have been with us 140 some odd episodes ago, our first episode was Spielberg. And one of our big takeaways in that first episode was the fact that Spielberg starts the film with a mini film that's going to set up the whole rest of the film. And I was was almost going to say that this film doesn't have it, but it does, because I think the plowing scene is almost the scene that emblemizes the entire rest of the movie. It's this it's this um, this drudgery, this this like forced labor that they end up all having to go through and survive like it nearly kills them. And uh, 
and then they pull through again, kind of underdog story. Uh, and it's sort of the little microcosm that sets up the, the bigger journey. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, that's definitely there, but yeah, this is a, definitely a really well-made film and even as well-made as it is, it's, it's kind of okay. <laughs> it's kind of, right. uh, kind of, that's kind of what I came away from it with is like, it's okay. It's not bad. Like it's the well constructed. Is, yeah. And I think, yeah, what we're, what we're getting to is that everything is so perfectly done. Everything is like set to be, you know, this is how you shoot a shot of a horse. That is the hero. This is how you shoot a shot of a drunk who's been beaten down by life. This is how you shoot a shot of no man's land with the, when the two sides are coming together, um, that it, it almost feels devoid of something because it's, it's almost just a textbook on how to make a film and it's, yeah, missing something of like it's like Spielberg was handed the book and they were like hey you could probably make a really great movie about this and Spielberg was like yeah I probably could but it's not like he really wanted to make a good movie about this he just yeah. knows how to do it that's kind of that's kind of the thing that's missing I think and it's it's like it's like the emotional core mm-hmm. like the like, heart like yeah. Schindler's List Spielberg wanted to make that movie that movie yeah. is burned into his core uh and you can feel that in a lot of his films, um, even his his playful early films. You know, he wants to make those films. And now he's at the point where he's just so good that he can just make a good movie without even thinking about it. And that kind of is what this felt like. Yeah, this uh, and you know what it kind of I kind of think the the lack of engagement comes from is that it really feels like we should be focusing more on the horse for most of most of the movie. But we're, we're really not focusing on the horse for most of the movie. Well, see, I kind of felt the opposite. I felt like we spend so much time on the horse that I didn't even know if there were any human characters that are really the main character. Well, I don't think that the point is... It's weird, right? Because I don't think there is really supposed to be a main character. They're kind that's, of that's into- another thing that's hard about the movie, yeah. though. Because you're... You're following the horse for a lot of it, and the horse is like a hero. The horse is saving his buddy horse, um, but at the same time, I'm like, I can kind of root for a horse, but at the end of the day, I need this to be about a person, and I don't know I which think, person it's about. Yeah, and I think that was kind of the the struggle that the the people making this film face, because in in my opinion, it's it's kind of stranded in the middle, right? If, if mm-hmm. we there were a few segments of the movie or one too many segments, I'll say, where there was almost no focus on the horse. Like, the horse was around, but, like, we didn't really... Like, you know how, like, the... um, But then there's the sequence where the horse, uh, the first guy, Tom Hiddleston, you know, dies on the horse, and then the horse gets captured and put into labor and all this stuff, and he, like, kind of meets these sensitive characters, which is really, I guess, it's sort of just an odyssey through the war, and yeah. the different the 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 characters the sympathetic characters on both sides of the war and vice yeah. versa the non sympathetic ones. But, it's supposed to be like an antho- anthology, basically. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but like the only connecting thread is the horse. We don't spend enough time with any humans, though, to really get much more than like a shallow mm-hmm. glimpse of them. And uh, we don't spend enough time 
not on the horse to really get a whole sense of the war. Like we get the war, but we've seen World War One movies before and there's not a whole lot yeah. else to this movie about World War One specifically, except that there's a horse. Yeah. Uh, the the thing for the war with me was kind of, kind of very similar. It was like this is this war movie isn't doing anything that is unique or interesting in terms of war movies. Like it's mm-hmm. it's set in a war, but it doesn't really have anything unique to say about the war. Like sure, there's those lines about like the war's taking everything from everyone, but but yeah. see, even that almost yeah, if we had not... focused, if we had just split the movie in half between uh, what's his face, Hobbit boy. And uh, the little French girl. French girl. Yeah. And we just basically we see her parents get taken away to war. We see her life with her grandfather. That's great. We see her decline in her health. We see them her meet with the horse after we spend some time with Hobby Boy. And uh, and then we've got those two touch points because that's what the film converges on. But we spent so much time on other stuff that we're that's not going to come back that. uh that impact at the very end is less than what it could be. Yeah. Like the, the German, the German and the British soldiers that we spend time with mm-hmm. aside from uh, even the Hobbit sympathetic Boy, one. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are just kind of like taking up space. Yeah. It's like, like okay, we get it. We're supposed to be, we're like, not every one of the Germans was evil. We've seen that before, but yeah. let's talk, let's talk about this little girl. Cause I care about her. Yeah. Like the, um, and I think that's where I came from was that I didn't care about the little girl. She, and it's probably just because she wasn't around that much. But you could have. That's what I'm saying. Like, if we focused on her, she could have been more sympathetic than, you know, the the German horse guy who's yeah. not, you know, an evil yeah. proto-nazi. That sequence, that sequence, the whole sequence of the horse at the farm just felt like wasted time to me because I didn't feel like we were spending any time with the horse. And I didn't feel like we were spending any time with the girl or the grandpa either. We were just kind mm-hmm. of watching soldiers march through. Um and it, yeah, we didn't feel like we really spent much time with anything. Uh, and, uh, you know, originally this was a book and then it was a stage play and the stage play was really popular because of the puppet, puppet horse. <laughs> Let's be real. Uh, we, we remember that. I think I remember seeing that on TV, the war horse puppet. Like that was, that was, yeah, kind of there a were a thing. lot of little featurettes and stuff. Yeah. People wanted to go see the war horse puppet. Um, and that's kind of like, I, I don't want to say it was kind of gimmicky, but it was kind of gimmicky. And, and like the 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 movie's kind of a little that way too, where it's kind of got the horse, but the horse doesn't really have a lot of uh, like deep emotional content behind it. Mm-hmm. And also, there's not it, it's kind of like a sample tray of of human characters with not enough focus on any of them. Yeah, I mean the it's way they like the last shot, the last like three shots of the film that just have like three cigarette filters on them. Um, you know, where the, uh, cigarette filter is like an old, old school, um, uh, camera lens filter before you would do that in post, you would literally like coat, you would put a piece of glass, like a, um, uh, like a light gel in front of the camera to change the color. And so a cigarette filter would be really dark at the top to darken the sky and it would have this orange tinting to it. And so it gave off, like you would use it a lot of times in like, uh, beach scenes are really hot, like deserty kind of scenes. But the whole end of the film is just this really orange, like explosive sunset, like beautiful, um, emotional, it looks like a Western type yeah. thing. But it's almost like the whole film is, is tonally covered with this 
with this filter that just makes everything like beautiful and to some extent distant and sterile yeah. uh, and just completely okay. unrealistic. Yeah. Again, it kind of falls into that um, uh, awards bait category, I think, a little mm -hmm. bit, where it's like there's a lot of money into it, but there's not a lot of personal interest. And somebody was like, hey, we have this play that's really popular. If we make it into a movie, it's bound to get some uh, some awards uh, notice, especially if we have like this big director Spielberg attached. And yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, that that's kind of the vibe I get here, but it kind of just feels disjointed. Again, I mean, the way they shot it is really cool. It's gorgeous, obviously. The way they shot the horse is amazing. You get a lot of emotion from its eyes. Um, again, probably not because there's emotion there, but because we're people and people uh, can't help but project emotion into animals. Um, and then even, well, even if they're the, just standing there chilling. this film does, does more than that with the, uh, like I said, the sequences where like the war horse volunteers himself as tribute for the other horse who has to carry the uh the gun um like there there are sequences where the horse just straight up becomes a uh, uh anthropomorphized character um more than just implying it which i thought was kind of interesting because we do spend a lot of chunks of the film just following the horse and none of the other characters that are really main characters yeah um, uh but of all of that, Alex, what what of the anthology vignettes, which was your favorite? Oh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess the one with, even though I'm not really emotionally invested in it, I thought the, um, I thought the, uh, the scene where the British and the German shoulder crossed the lines together to get the horse, who at that point mm -hmm. was animatronic because weren't going to put a real horse into barbed wire, wire like that. Yeah. But the, the animatronic horse did look really good, though. Uh, much better yeah. than the animatronic shark from Jaws. <laughs> and, but that but, was also all like super silhouetted, so it was a, it was a good opportunity to use that because it was so exactly. stylized at that point. Yeah, they, they shot it so that you wouldn't notice it was an animatronic horse. Mm -hmm. um, but that scene was uh, at least really well written, and I think it sticks in my memory pretty well. Uh, the little French girl scene, like I said, I didn't feel like we really got much of a sense of her as a character, you know, she yeah. just kind of did. There's a lot that was implied that was yeah. never shown. Yeah. And I mean, and heavily implied, like yeah. just like, implied. You almost could just miss the whole fact that she was sick if you weren't yeah. paying close enough attention. <laughs> I think I did the first time I watched the movie a few years back. Mm -hmm. Um, but that one's kind of, eh, the, the whole Heigelman thing the second guy who cared for horses, it didn't feel like there was any real stakes in that one, even though uh, the black horse did die at the end of it. It just mm -hmm. kind of felt like nothing. There wasn't really much of a plot. <laughs> like the sequence of events just kind of happened um, without any really like sensical progression. Uh, let's see, what else was there? Oh, the two German boys who run away. Mm-hmm. No, I mean it could have been an interesting movie, but it was it was like a couple scenes. I know it feels like it feels like a different war story that I've heard before, but it was just sort of hinted at yeah. in this one. Again, it's very much a sampling platter, and it's yeah. not. It's hard. And then to there's really... the first one with Tom Hiddleston and Benedict Cumberbatch where they take the horse, and I thought that one was kind of interesting because, like, you almost expect them to be really gruff generals, like take. I'm taking your horse because it's needed for the war. 
But then Tom Hiddleston's character like draws him the sketch of the horse and sends it back to him like, hey, I'm actually going to, you know, try and take care of your horse. And then they do a really good Kuleshov effect with that sequence where you see and actually the first shot of them like coming out of the wheat and then charging them in the surprise attack was really, really well shot. Uh, And then the Kuleshov effect of Tom Hiddleston on the horse, cutaway machine gun firing shot of the horse without a rider running through the woods um, was so subtle, but really effective because Spielberg knows what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was well done. It was a well done scene, but uh, I, I feel like that's kind of what we're left with at the end of war horse is a bunch of mm-hmm. well done scenes and a kind of meh movie. Yep. Like this, the, 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 some, the the whole is not greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. And especially, you know, given that it's Spielberg, like Spielberg did really good with this film, but another director could have made a really good war horse film while Spielberg made a better Spielberg film. But I mean, I guess Spielberg has time to do, <laughs> you know, films that are not going to make the top of his oeuvre. I, I think, I think, I think the I think somebody would need because War Horse is kind of an old story. Like the original book is from like the 30s. So yeah, because I think the author actually talked to World War One vets that came back and learned a bunch of stories and learned how like attached some of them were to their horses and then how many horses died. And so he was trying to get a sense of all that in the book. I mean, the structure the structure makes sense in a book format. Right, because you don't necessarily need that through line that you need in a movie, because you experience a movie over the course of two hours, mm-hmm. and you're done. But you experience a book over the course of days and chapters and sections. So, like the way it's disconnected in a book kind of makes more sense than the way it's disconnected in a film, where you don't have the time to kind of have that disconnection there. So, yeah, yeah. All right, that's Warhorse. Shall we move on to overall notes? We shall. Jason, take it away. Oh, wait, you don't do that. So, yeah, horses. There's so many ways to put horses in movies, and they've been put into movies in all the ways. All the ways. There's something, uh, like, definitely fundamentally cinematic about a horse, Um, especially, like, they kind of almost represent the the form of cinema that's less, that that is more uh, show, don't tell. You know, they're all about motion. They're silent. They've got deep brooding eyes that stare at the camera um, and you can just read emotion into them. They kind of fit well into the cinematic landscape. And then, of course, you know, people just like horses and we use them in lots of ways. So, um, you know, it's it's makes sense to have them uh, to have them built into so many different kinds of movies and so many different kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. You can use them as a theme like in Black Stallion. It has a metaphor also in Black Stallion or a spirit or as a plot motivation, like in uh, our connecting thread, like in War Horse. Mm-hmm. Um, use or them in straight up characters like spirit and War Horse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we've also, I mean, even though they're all horse movies, we've covered like essentially three different or three other different kinds of genres as well. Uh, survival stories, a sports story, and two uh, epics or odysseys as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that are adventure epics uh, just in the course of this one episode. So horses kind of fit in anywhere. Uh, yeah. 
and more than more than just being horses, like the the themes and the metaphors that they uh, represent are ultimately, you know, reflections of the human characters in the story. So in some ways, that's the ways that the horses act, like the wildness of a horse can be representative of the wildness of a person or a person's emotion, but also they can be mirrors or representative of humans in the ways that the human characters treat the horses. Like, I think that's one of the things in War Horses, you see the characters who don't respect the horses versus the ones who do respect the horses. And uh, that's that's something with all the films. Like, if it's a film with a prominent horse character, you're looking for the characters who are actually treating that horse character as, like, a, a actual living being and not just as a, a useful tool. Uh, which also comes up in spirit and stuff like that. So it's it's a reflection of which characters you can trust and which characters you can't just based on how they interact with the horse characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do that with um, with lots of lots of animals, but there's something very powerful about doing it with a horse because horses are kind of big <laughs> and mm-hmm. powerful and potentially Ultimately, dangerous. they're stronger than us, but they can oh, still yeah. be subdued by us in violent means or in uh, uh, cooperative means. Make make no mistake, one-on-one, bare-handed and bare-hoofed, a horse is kicking your ass. Like, Literally. you're not winning against a horse. Like that, and yes, <laughs> correct, that is exactly how they will do it. Or probably your head. That's the yeah. really dangerous thing you gotta look out for. Oh, um, man. In the, in the documentary Buck, um, there, so the, the documentary follows him around as he does uh, horse training camps uh, around the country. And there was one horse that got brought in that had, uh, they suspected it was oxygen deprived um, originally. And also it wasn't fixed, which apparently makes a horse, uh, especially a male horse, like very aggressive. And so there was, there was a lot of stuff going on. But the horse, uh, one of the trainers at the camp was uh, bitten by the horse like on the head and that was not a pretty huh? wound like yeah i could only imagine yeah so they're you know they're dangerous don't I, I haven't heard about a horse bite before but i don't imagine that goes great nope and that is apparently it's a thing it happens um but yeah so there it's it's so interesting that we can have such a um you know horses are not like grizzly bears like in grizzly man you can live with grizzly bears for only so long uh before you know they they don't want to live with you anymore but horses if you treat them right like you can have a lifelong relationship with them uh but they they are still ultimately powerfuler than people yeah i mean horses man horses and horses uh, if you want a little bit more about horses, A, check out the bonus podcast that uh, will be coming out in a few weeks. Um, but also, we did talk about uh, another sports movie involving horses, but more of the rodeo variety in episode 117, uh, in which we talked about the rider. And that one, I, I really love the rider. Uh, and that one is a lot about kind of how horses can be tied to you know even a person's identity and uh how the dangers and the and the fundamental wildness of horses can be dangerous and how you choose to uh to live with that so check that one out it was a great movie do check it out it is an excellent movie i quite enjoyed that one all right jonathan 
Next time on the podcast, we are going to be talking about frozen survival. Surviving the deep, frost survival of, of the frozen weather. Yes. It's another survival episode, which I don't think we've done a survival episode since Lost at Sea, which is like the yeah. fourth episode ever. Yeah, not a full <laughs> so, episode at least. But anyway, we will be talking about a set of movies where people have to survive extreme winter weather conditions and normally extreme locations like mountains and the North Pole and the depths of the Alaskan wilderness where nobody lives but vicious wolves that will try to eat you. Um, so we'll be talking about Touching the Void from 2003, The Gray from 2011, uh, Everest from 2015, and Arctic from 2018. And if you would like to uh, get more, as I said, we have a bonus podcast, uh, which you can check out on the Patreon. Uh, we just... The last episode that was released was uh, regarding Rings of Power. Um, we watched the first two slash four episodes of that and talked a little bit about it and what we were thinking. And now the whole show or the whole season is out. And so you can see how wrong we were in our uh, guesses and such and such. Um, so, yeah. And uh, you can also join us on the Discord. That is free for everyone. And uh, you can keep up with our discussions on all things horses and coldness and Lord of the Rings. Cold horses. Cold horses. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. To find links to things that we talked about today, as well as a complete list of past episodes and all 446 films we've covered so far, visit thefilmlinks.com. You can also join us for ongoing film discussions on our Discord server. And to stay posted about upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at thefilmlinks. Summaries for each of the films this episode were recorded by me, Jason Harden. You can find me on Twitter at TheBlueJay1994. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. A horse, a horse, my podcast for a horse. Felt like that had to go in there somewhere.